let's move more into that space because uh, I promised this to our, our listeners that we are going to talk about um, the brain-heart connection, and you've been pioneering some, you know, powerful research on this topic. And so, so folks, I mean, take it on faith that somewhere, you know, as you read that book, you will get a fuller narrative of how, Jim, you made it from that, you know, highly challenged environment, which you know, our heart just uh, goes out to you, right? When you describe what it was like, and then you get this, uh, you know, powerful, you know, inner journey started by roots, and then manifesting all of these you know in, intentions good things start to happen in your career and your life and yet it's uh, it, it's, it's a topsy-turvy journey as, as you've highlighted to us and so all, all of that stuff you know let's get that from the book for now I want to maybe invite you to you know tell us a little bit about these findings that you're getting about the brain heart connection about the um, you know the uh, significance of the heart as a key part of manifesting our full potential, just to help those of us who have been very inspired, let's say, by some of this latest science uh, coming from the neuroscience arena, to also start to open up and recognize a more whole person view, you know, with the heart being a key part of that. You've talked about how, for example, the heart sends more signals to the brain that the brain sends to the heart. And the heart is often not really waiting for any instructions from the brain. It's actually going out and doing its own thing in terms of sending signals out to the rest of the body, et cetera. What is, you know, what are some of these findings and what do they suggest to us about the um, step beyond the mind, you know, more into the heart as well in, in our everyday practices? Well, I, I think both metaphorically and uh, literally, the heart is uh, the place where a lot of our humanity lies, if you will. You know, it's interesting. There was a research study uh, among monks, uh, Tibetan monks. And uh, at that time when that study was done, they were using these EEG, electroencephalogram, these caps you would put on people's heads. And I'm sure you may have seen some of those photographs of monks with these caps on. So the scientist, uh, was, who was Richie Davidson at the time, was presenting what they were trying to find. And actually, they were trying to study uh, compassion. And so he showed them what the way they were going to test it and was putting this uh, uh, helmet with these electrodes on it. And when he showed them, they all started laughing. He thought it was because of how ridiculous it looked to have this cap with electrodes. But what was explained to him was that compassion is not in the head, compassion is in the heart. And interestingly, that has been uh, proven to be the case, if you will. What's fascinating is if you look at the nature of many of these practices, especially from Eastern traditions, but also from many Western traditions, experientially, these individuals over thousands of years have demonstrated certain truths through some of these religious practices that if you remove the dogma associated with them are extraordinarily powerful and have been validated by science. And so this whole idea of the power of the heart. You know, there's something called broken heart syndrome, and this was described uh, in Japanese women, and uh, their heart will just stop. They examine them, and there's absolutely no coronary artery disease or anything. It's a healthy heart. But this sudden release of these uh, catecholamines that are associated with the sudden onset of a severe stress response negatively affect the heart. And so these work in partnership uh, in a homeostatic relationship, hopefully, that uh, allow us the potential uh, to be our best selves. You know, the other aspect of this, and uh, I'm sure you probably read Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning, 
there's a quote attributed to him, but not from him. <laughs> and uh, it's funny because when I use a quote, I always research it to make sure that it's actually a quote, even though it's quoted by many people. So he did not say this, but the reality is true, which between stimulus and response, there's a pause, and within that pause uh, allows your freedom. And what he means by this is that many of us are reactive and do not have the ability to control our emotions. And this is why if somebody challenges you or is negative to you, you immediately feel like you have to confront them. Now, in some cases, you may also run away, but you have to confront them. Uh, and it can lead to consequences, uh, of course, that we do not want to occur. But the other side of it is that oftentimes when people interact with you, you are under the false notion that their behavior is related to you. And so often that's not the case. You know, we're talking about some events that have created uh, trauma or distraction or fear in yourself. And, you know, as an example, if you have an argument with your spouse or some negative event has occurred before you go into a meeting, how you react in that meeting is not necessarily have anything to do with the meeting whatsoever, but it can have huge negative consequences. Another example is I'm sure that you've probably been almost run off the road by a, a driver who cuts in front of you and you have to slam on your brakes. And of course, generally, there is on your side, uh, not you specifically, but a hand gesture oftentimes by some people and an expletive. And, you know, of course, you immediately decide the person uh, has done something to you. They're selfish. They're not interested in your own safety, except, et cetera, et cetera. But if I tell you that the driver of that automobile is rushing his wife to the hospital who's pregnant, she's broken her water, suddenly go, oh, my God, I, you know, I understand why that happened. God, if I could have squirted them there, I would do it. But geez, I would have done the same thing, right? And here, in a microsecond, your perspective has changed, right? You've gone from being this intense anger and feeling that you've been wronged to suddenly one of sympathy, empathy, and a desire to help. And this is the nature of how we interpret events, which can often not be correct. Or even if they are correct, you realize that that anger and hostility does nothing. And this is part of the problem, but that is in your power. And you can learn not to be reactive but to take that pause, because when you're reactive, it shuts down your prefrontal cortex. It shuts down your executive control areas, which give you knowledge from memories, et cetera, that allows you to make a much more discerning decision versus a reactive decision, which, of course, is how we evolved is to make quick decisions and ignore other data that's available because you think it puts you at risk. And in modern society, that's not necessarily the case, but we still react the same. And so it also demonstrates, again, that all of these powers are within you and that you have the ability to control these. And with certain types of mind training, if you want to call it that, you can actually teach yourself to be calm, thoughtful, non-reactive. And when you do that, again, you switch from the sympathetic nervous system, flight, fight, or uh, fear, freeze response, 
which has a huge negative consequence, certainly in the long term, in terms of effect on your blood pressure, uh, your immune system, uh, the release of stress hormones, the release of inflammatory proteins, uh, to the other system, which is really how we're supposed to live, which is engagement of your parasympathetic nervous system or this rest and digest system. We're calm. You have an evenness of temperament where your blood pressure is low, where uh, something called heart rate variability is increased uh, conversely because a lack of heart rate variability, which happens in the stress response, is one of the greatest causes of sudden cardiac death. And we were talking about the broken heart syndrome. Uh, so if you can self-modulate, which is within your power, then that has huge, huge positive consequences and actually is also associated with increased longevity and more social connection. So it's, it's, it's uh, very, very uh, powerful. And again, to emphasize, it is within your ability to learn these types of techniques. And at the end of the day, you will be much more happy, much more thoughtful, and you will perform at a much higher level. You just shared with us really a, a user manual for relationships, for leadership, <laughs> you know, for, for life. A lot of richness to that. Thank you. Um, I'm going to take another quote from your book, uh, which I think continues to build on this theme, this notion that in our outer affairs, actually there is power to pursuing, you know, our outer goals from a place of, you know, inner pursuit, inner mastery, inner growth. You said beautifully, you said our journey isn't meant to be an inward journey alone, you know, when you're meditating or doing mindfulness or any of these practices to help you build more self-modulation and regulation from within, right? So you say our journey isn't meant to be an inward journey alone, but an outward journey of connection as well. When we go inward and our heart is open, we will connect with the heart and the heart will compel us to go outward and connect with others. Our journey is then one of transcendence, not endless self-reflection. We can create anything we want, but it is only the intelligence of the heart that can tell us what is worth creating. No, and I think that's uh, exactly right. And, you know, if I reflect back on my own life, you know, I used to have a lot of anger and hostility towards my parents because of this reality that I was ignored or did not receive the love or nurturing that I needed. But what I realized was that they had their own struggles with alcoholism, with mental illness, which prevented them from giving me what I needed. And as a result, their own suffering, their own response to that suffering, without the tools to overcome that suffering, was not their fault. And it allowed me to dissipate that anger to one of empathy and love. And I think, again, that helps remove the baggage that so many of us carry. The other thing about this is that when I had this internal uh, conflict of anger, hostility, being uh, feeling I was ignored, uh, that I wasn't nurtured, also combined with uh, despair and hopelessness, it changed how I walked in the world. It changed how people reacted to me because as a species, we are very intuitive in regard to determining others' emotional states. When I shifted how I thought to one of openness, having an open heart, not being terrified or afraid, having an optimism about the future versus hopelessness, 
magic happened. And what that magic was is that people then, if you will, came to my aid. People then were helpful to me. People then wanted to see me succeed. And the reason is I was not giving out this impression of anger and hostility. I was giving the impression of an openness and a desire to be of service, to care. And again, this change in attitude, which you hold within yourself, again, changes everything. There is nothing that I have done that has been me doing it alone. And this is another false narrative that oftentimes, sadly, people who lack self-awareness intuit that everything is about them. They did it. Nobody helped them. Right. And it's sad to see these people because, again, this falls back on this narrative of demonstrating, uh, frankly, your ego and how important you are and how you did it. And that comes out of insecurity. There's not a single thing I have ever accomplished without immense effort and help from other people. And I'm completely appreciative of that and thankful for that. As an example, you know, as a doctor, I cannot be a neurosurgeon without the help of nurses. I cannot be a neurosurgeon without the help of the people who empty the bed pads, make the bed, sweep the floors. They are an integral part of my success. And as a result, I go out of my way to express gratitude to them. And it makes a huge difference. As an example, I, well, I've had more than one colleague, but you know, I've had colleagues who have this inflated sense of self-import, and they treat people horribly. They don't treat them with dignity. They don't treat them as an equal. And these people, of course, have resentment about that. You know, when I was in the military, uh, after I trained as a neurosurgeon, I had a colleague who was completely abusive to people. I mean, they disliked him so much because he was just so uh, mean to them and treated them like they were nothing. And so when he wanted something, no one would do it for him. As an example, the supply sergeant would say, I'm sorry, sir, uh, I'm not able to order that for you. Versus myself, and I'm not trying to, uh, you know, say I'm so great, but, you know, as an example, patients would give me bottles of alcohol, uh, wine or whiskey or whatever, and I would give them the way to the supply sergeant, say, listen, I just want to give this to you to thank you. And so when I wanted something, he'd say, oh, yeah, Dr. Doty, I'll get that. <laughs> I'll be able to get that to you tomorrow. <laughs> and, again, it was a completely different uh, narrative. I also had an experience where I was at a private hospital in the South, and I was leaving to come back to California. And the, so I interviewed a neurosurgeon. And I walked into the hospital, and the lady at the information desk said, Dr. Doty, it's so good to see you again. You know, I heard you're leaving. I'm so sorry. Can I give you a hug? So I hug her. The next place we go is the cafeteria. The woman there says, Dr. Doty, uh, listen, I, I know you're leaving, but I have some uh, croissants back there I saved for you, and let me make you your latte. We go from there to radiology, and the tech comes up and says, Dr. Doty, I just want to thank you so much for that gift you gave for my baby. <laughs> then we go to the intensive care unit. The nurse says, Dr. Doty, you know, thank you for taking the time to take care of my mother. And then we go back to my office. And I said, so, you know, what do you think of the hospital? And stuff? He goes, what the hell just went on? Mm -hmm. I looked at him and I said, what are you talking about? What's all this hugging and crap uh, mm -hmm. stuff? And I looked at him and I go, what are you talking about? I said, you know, I have found that when you're kind, when you're thoughtful, when you look at everyone with respect and dignity and you're appreciative, 
magically, people are there to help you. And I said, what is your leadership style or what is it you doing? And, and literally, here's what he said to me. He said, I tell them the shit and they say where and how much. And I said, well, obviously, that's why you aren't able to have, hold a job. <laughs> uh, uh, but it is this type of thought processes, this ego, uh, which actually, frankly, translates to deep insecurity uh, in these people's behavior. You know, I look, I've accomplished certain things, and I'm proud of that, but everyone has accomplished certain things. And also, we're all in a struggle uh, to survive in, a, in some ways a very harsh environment. When you create, as an example, a work environment where people are not widgets that are disposable, when people are recognized for their contributions, where people are given the opportunity without criticism to take chances to perform when the leader himself or herself is vulnerable and shows that they're part of a team and without the other people the company uh, cannot be a success you know when you create that environment you cannot pay people enough for the work that they do versus you know i'm sure you've experienced you walk into a meeting and there's a guy sitting there with his arms crossed and a scowl on his face you know, what does that immediately do? That engages your sympathetic nervous system. You're suddenly scared. You're anxious versus somebody walking and go, hey, how are you today? Listen, uh, I just want to thank you for this. I think you're great, doing a great job, but, you know, there are a couple of things we need to focus on to help you do your job better. I mean, these are completely different narratives, but everyone has the ability within themselves to go towards the latter where you're sitting there being open, vulnerable, and kind. And you emanate this, which then uh, makes everyone comfortable. Yeah. How beautiful. I uh, you know, really want to applaud you for bringing this kind of consciousness to uh, the practice of medicine. Um, you know, there's a former student of mine. She uh, is a very accomplished oncologist, um, you know, Dr. Anna Pavlik. And she talks about how much uh, in oncology, you know, she's really sought to bring the capacity for empathy, you know, and, and compassion in the way you interact with the families. And I'm also reminded of an op-ed I read um, in the LA Times from, um, you know, Dr. Robert Pearl. I, I don't know if you know, know, know him. He's the former CEO of, um, you know, the Permanente Medical Group, you know, Kaiser Permanente. And he, he basically, oh, sure. he's written a book on uncaring, he calls it, like how the culture of medicine kills doctors and patients. And so this whole thing is about bringing more of a culture of caring, you know, into medicine. So... So, you, you, you know, you're an example of that, you know, it's in, in such a beautiful way. And the stories you're sharing would be equally appropriate, you know, for an entrepreneur, for a business person, for a political leader, for just any kind of person in a position to help shape uh, culture, you know, for the organization. So thank you for sharing. That was just such a beautiful set of stories. It also reminded me your capacity for gratitude, you know, and attunement to the uh, invisible but very um, important acts that are happening all around us all the time of this quote from Einstein. I don't know if you come across now. I I, I better I better do my deeper, uh, you know, investigation on it to make sure it's Einstein. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but for now, if we take it on faith that, the, you know, uh, it is Einstein. It is, <laughs> you know, anyway, so, so the, the quote goes by, uh, actually it is, it's from this book, The World as I See It. And he says, Every day I remind myself that my inner and outer life are based on the labors of other men living in dead and that I must exert myself in order to give in the same measure as I have received and am still receiving. 
Yeah, another, you know, I, like I, I'm a mathematician at heart, you know, Jim, um, and so I, I like to kind of ultimately, um, you know, kind of link that mathematics back to everything we do. And so, uh, in what you were just saying, the math that sort of was coming in my mind is that when you live with, if you want to call it like a finite consciousness, then you start to naturally quantify and rank order and say, oh wow, like my contribution is this big and your contribution is this small. But when you live with more of a boundless, more of like an infinite consciousness, then in that perspective that you get from the transcending infinite kind of view, I mean, there's no difference between something that is this large and this small or anything in between. I mean, it's all the same because like, you know, from that infinite vantage point, they're all like drops in the ocean. I think that if you always keep that in mind, because our success, frankly, is not us. It is the weakest link in our relationships or in our work. So, you know, if you uh, are denigrate others, um, you're not authentic, you're not kind, well, the system will fail, and it often fails at a place where you think it shouldn't have failed. But it emphasizes exactly what you said. I'm not particularly more important than anyone else. Now, do I have opportunities? Do I interact with people? that are wonderful. Uh, but at the end of the day, I can sit down with someone, you know, bakes bread and have a great conversation with them and not feel as if they're wasting my time because they're not, they're teaching me something. They have an energy about them and, and whether, you know, it's hanging out with them or spending time with Sri Sri or Amma or the Dalai Lama, it's wonderful. It's fantastic. But I never see it as any different. You know, they're all human beings. They're all, and, and you know, as, I, as you've noted, I mean, I've told my story, and in some ways in an elegant way, uh, which hopefully is transformative. And I don't take all the credit because I had uh, an incredible editor. But my point is that if you sit down with anyone and you take the time, everyone has an incredible story. It's just their story hasn't been told. Oh, but, and they have something to say. You know, I used to work in a liquor store, and a guy would come in every day and buy a quart of vodka. And to be honest with you, I was not nice to him. Uh, and one day he confronted me, and it turned out that his daughter had died in a, a horrific accident. He was a professor, actually, at my university. His daughter had died in an accident. And then within three months, his wife died of cancer. So, you know, this fellow had nothing to live for, right, in his body. And, you know, when he would come in, he'd be disheveled. Obviously, he'd smell of alcohol. He sort of had this anger about him. And, and he really did confront me. And what he told me was, I know nothing about his life. And he was absolutely correct. I was in my sort of ego-driven, I'm important, you're nothing uh, view. And so this led to us having essentially conversations every day and where I learned to respect him and honor his story and in some ways support him. And it was fascinating. Over like three to six months, he went from a quart of vodka <laughs> to a pot of vodka <laughs> to these little airplane vodkas. <laughs> and then he stopped. And in the transition, his dress improved, and he actually uh, realized he had a purpose to live. And, and he stopped drinking completely.
but that was really a demonstration of uh, this reality that I knew nothing about his story. I knew nothing about what was driving him. I made assumptions. And frankly, I was a jerk. But fortunately, frankly, through him confronting me, uh, I learned a big lesson. And it was profound lesson. And it was to never judge anyone because we don't know what's inside of their heart. We don't know what experiences they've had. We don't know what they've suffered through. And uh, so that idea of not being judgmental, of being thoughtful, actually allows people to grow and oftentimes overcome and realize that their life really is a value. What a powerful story. You know, thank you for your candor, your humility and um, living through that moment, responding to it in that way, and now um, giving us the benefit of uh, learning from, from your experience. Um, you have this mnemonic that you've created, uh, C-D-E-F-G-H-I-J-K-L. And folks, each of these stands for a beautiful quality, a beautiful quality that you and I and all of us can cultivate, uh, very heart-based qualities. Um, the one you just talked about, non-judgment, uh, I think if I recall, correct me if I'm wrong, is associated with the D, isn't it? The dignity part. Yes. Yeah, I could go that, through that with you. And, you know, people ask me what my practice is. And, and, you know, oftentimes people are interested in what is your meditative practice. And, uh, you know, people shouldn't get lost in what is meditation, <laughs> right? Because then, especially for high-performing people, they go, I can't do it, I can't do it. What my practice is every day is I sit by the side of my bed and I close my eyes and I slowly breathe in and out. I think of the joy and awe of being in this world and that blessing. And then I go through this alphabet uh, of the heart, if you will, with intention. And it starts with C, compassion for self and others. D, recognizing the dignity of every person. E, practicing equanimity, as we talked about. F, practicing forgiveness. You know, so many people, they get anger that they hold within them. And that anger only negatively affects them, but it does nothing. And so being able to forgive somebody, which is not the same as forget, allows you not to have to carry that burden and allows you to go forward. G, as you mentioned, is gratitude. This appreciation of the gifts that you've been given instead of constantly looking up and thinking what you don't have when you're comparing yourself to others, but looking down and saying, I am so blessed and I am so thankful. H is humility, which we've talked a bit about. You know, none of us does anything without the help of other people. And you are no more important than anyone else. I is having integrity and values that bound your behaviors. J is this concept of justice or fairness or our response as being privileged to care for those who are vulnerable. K, of course, is kindness. There, has to be no, there doesn't have to be any suffering involved. You simply are nice in every act that you do. And, of course, all of this is contained by love. Yeah, thank you. That is uh, a beautiful uh, invention uh, from you to allow us to coalesce together these qualities into, uh, into the beautiful mnemonic. And uh, folks, uh, I mean, just think about it. So, so beautiful, just that sequence of, you know, letters from the alphabet. And um, maybe it's a test that you can take home is, uh, to see if you can, um, yeah, just to remind yourself of what each of those letters stands for. Uh, and then 
that is your practice. That is your meditation. You infuse yourself with the values and intentions embodied in these, um, you know, in these in these few letters, ten letters, if I recall. Uh, right. and, and that's the way you try to live that day. No, that's exactly right. And and the thing is, of course, throughout the day there may be stresses or strains. And what I'll do is uh, I'll pause and take a minute or two, either choose a letter of the alphabet or just repeat the thing slowly while breathing in and out, and it resets my intentions. So I don't allow things to get out of control uh, emotionally. And because, you know, all of us have stress and strains throughout our days, just to mention two other aspects of that is there was a 16-year-old high school student who uh, came to me after reading the book, and she said, will you help me do an app uh, for kids who uh, have mental health issues, are stressed and anxious? Now, when I say help me, all I did was uh, mentor her, but she actually created an app, which is on uh, the different platforms, iOS or iPhone, called Alphabet of the Heart, which goes through this. The other thing is I received a note from a woman who said, I'm a person of faith. I am the spiritual director at the largest homeless shelter in the United States. I had become burned out in my job. I had resigned. My friends sent me all these scriptures. Nothing helped me. On my last day at work, as I was packing my box, someone shared with me that, the alphabet of the heart. She said, it gave me the strength to return to work. Now, you know, how moving is that? Then what happened is, uh, and I sent her, of course, a, a response. Now, thank you for making my day. A few months later, she sent me another email. She said, you know, this is so powerful. We've started using this as a practice in the homeless shelter. I'm going, oh, my God, this is amazing. A few months later, she sends me another note. And she says, I was telling my best friend, her daughter was there about this experience. Her daughter is 12 years old, no, 9 years old, and she makes beads. And she said on her own, she created a little mala, I think is it, uh, of these beads, 10 wooden beads to represent each letter. And on her own, she added a golden bead to represent the golden rule. Would you mind if we sold these to raise money for the homeless shelter? So then what she did a few months later, she sent me a note. And she said, you know, this has remained so powerful for me. I created a video. And I want to share it with you with your permission and ask if I can post it. And it shows this little girl's hands on this golden cloth stringing these beads where she talks about, and it's like a beautiful music, and she talks about through intention and repetition, you can create and strengthen neural pathways of compassion. And if anyone wants to look at it, it's under Compassion Beat San Antonio. And then, uh, so then she started selling these. Now, the end of the story, and I know we're probably running out of time, but the end of the story is as follows. I was hosting the Dalai Lama at Stanford, and, uh, you know, I wanted to honor her because she has two heroes, the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu. So... I sent her a note and I said, listen, I would love for you to come and meet the Dalai Lama. I'm hosting him. Sends me a note and she says, you know, I would love to come, but I, I have very little money, et cetera, et cetera. I said, well, listen, I'm going to hire you as a consultant to me. <laughs> Bring a bunch of beads. We'll have the Dalai Lama bless them and you'll get to meet the Dalai Lama. So she did come and all of that happened. It was wonderful. The thing about Tutu is she has the same date of birth as Tutu and he's also, of course, her hero. So I had the privilege of being invited to Tutu's 80th birthday, and it was an extraordinary experience. And then I was there for his wife's birthday a period of time later. And so we had become friends. 
and I was invited to his 85th birthday. And I was giving a lecture in Oslo, Norway. And I sent her, I said, listen, you have to do me a favor. <laughs> I said, I'm not going to be able to attend. I want you to attend in my place, and I'm going to pay everything. <laughs> and you'll get to meet uh, two. And, you know, for me, that was a relatively insignificant amount of money. For her, that was a huge thing. So she got to fly to South Cape Town and spend time with Tutu. And it was a very small gathering of a, a few hundred people. And so she got to see both of her heroes. And that was my reward for her thoughtfulness, kindness, and, uh, you know, frankly, being a wonderful human being. Wow, what a great story. What a great story. Yeah, uh, I'm intrigued. I want to see these beads um, and these necklaces. I will send you some. <laughs> oh, yeah, that, that would be so sweet. I want to get them, and I you know, may be able to share some of them in my class at Columbia. I think there will be students who <clears throat> really want these. Um, well, uh, she actually sells them, and if people want to go, uh, there's a website called intothemagicshop.com about the book, and it actually tells that story, and she actually sells them to support uh, the homeless shelter and uh, this peace initiative that she does. Uh, you know, I don't get anything for it. I'm just thankful that she does that. So they're readily available. Uh, the other thing, we talked about the alphabet of the heart. I can actually send you a PDF of a poster that was made that lists the alphabet of the heart and can easily be downloaded if people are interested. All right. Wonderful. Thank you for those uh, resources as well. Uh, Jim, we are coming to, to the end, end of time here, and I'm just so grateful for your generosity in sharing so much and also expanding the you know, time that we could have together. I was uh, going to, you know, want to talk to you a little bit about your time and experiences with uh, Shri Shri and Amma and, uh, you know, Desmond Tutu and Dalai Lama and Pope Francis. But, <laughs> you know, it's, it's as if, like, I guess, you know, their energy and their consciousness and their spirit, you have made that flow through your words and your ideas and the precepts that you have offered to us. So I do feel that they are well represented here in our conversation, even though not in a human story form. And perhaps that's a conversation for another day that will attract you back uh, to our to our uh, podcast. Sure. No, I would love that. But let me just tell you, because, uh, you know, so many people get lost in the dogma of a religion, and it's fine as a support tool. But these evolved spiritual leaders can assess your humanity in a microsecond. And the reality is these people live above the dogma. And what I mean by that is they intuitively know if you have an open heart, if you're caring, if you're compassionate, if you love. And, I mean, frankly, I'm an atheist. The only thing I believe in is this present moment. But people say to me, they go, well, how is it possible you can sit on stage with Amma or the Dalai Lama or Sri Sri and they embrace you? And I say, because, first of all, I don't want anything. Second of all, I am not interested, per se, in their dogma. I'm interested in their humanity and how I can learn from them. And maybe the other side is, I'm the exact same with them as I am with anyone else. And so I don't worship them or look at them as a god. I look at them as an evolved human being. And I think all of us can learn something from that because it's not the dogma. It's about who you are inside of yourself, how you carry yourself, 
And then that emanates from you to create this energy that allows you then to connect with these evolved spiritual leaders because they immediately sense that. There's a lot to unpack there. That's uh, a beautiful uh, you know, thought. Uh, thank you for that. A very unifying thought as well. Not just um, unifying across faiths and traditions, given that they come from such uh, different paths themselves, but also unifying in terms of them and us. You know, um, seeing seeing the common humanity in both and that potential that lies within us just as them. Powerful. Thank you. Uh, Jim, I'm going to close with a quote from you. And as I'm sharing this, perhaps... Um, I could also invite you to think about what you'd like to leave as a final thought for our audience to, you know, wish them or, you know, guide them in their journey ahead. And so uh, let me read this quote and then I'd like to invite you to have the last word. Oh, here. Thank you. Um, and so, um, you know, so these are Jim's words, folks. And, and Jim, you're saying um, it's easy to connect the dots of a life in retrospect, but it's much harder to trust the dots will connect together and form a beautiful picture when you're in the messiness of living a life. I could never have predicted either the successes or the failures in my life, but all of them have made me a better husband, a better father, a better doctor, and a better person. Jim, I, I can't you know, share with you just how grateful I am that we have in you a living example of something that uh, really warms my heart, that is a core aspiration you know, for me in the work that uh, I'm striving to bring and do in the world, which is to awaken us all to the realization that in addition to mastering you know, the technical and functional craft or whatever trade we are in, whether we are a scientist or a politician or a lawyer or a doctor or a business person or what have you, an artist, you know, what have you, that that craft that we are you know, working on uh, will be so much more um, you know, you know, expressed and um, optimized if we can do it by also striving to be a good human being. And that is what you represent. You are a tremendous philanthropist. You have been a tremendous entrepreneur. You are a institution builder in many regards. You are a connector with all of these different paths and traditions and people that you have um, gained such uh, close ties with. And you are also a physician and a medical, uh, you know, and a human nature researcher. But fundamentally behind all of this is that idea of having lived life in a way that has made you a better person. Not just you exude really inspiring qualities today, but the fact that it has been a journey, that along the way there have been stumbles, and that you're open to sharing them with us. Uh, I know that my listeners join me in thanking you so much for that. Well, you know, thank you so much for the work that you do and how you are inspiring others through your guests, through your work because that's what it's all about. How can we be our best selves? And it's not a manifestation of uh, the step tones of success defined by society. It's the inner journey that actually allows us to recognize that being of service is the expression of our greatest humanity. And what I'd like to leave you with is the following. Each and every one of us, every day, has the ability to improve the life of another person. Never forget that. You have that within your power. Sometimes it can be simply saying hello. Sometimes it can be giving a hug to somebody. Sometimes it can be taking a minute or two to simply converse with somebody. Sometimes it could uh, be giving somebody money so that they can eat. And these are very, very simple things that can be extraordinarily powerful to another person, but frankly end up being extraordinarily powerful within your own life. 
And if you practice that and you walk that walk, you will find that your entire life will change because you will no longer be focused on self. You will be focused on the other, recognizing that the other is you. And when you do that, that creates a life. And it's a life you want to live. A life you want to live. Um, how beautiful. Thank you so much, Jim, for all you do and for spending this time with us. We look forward to having you back again soon. And in the meanwhile, we wish you well in all those beautiful quests that you are pursuing, both on the inside and the outside. Well, thank you, my friend. And it's been a joy and a pleasure. And I appreciate your guests taking the time to listen. And I do hope that some of these uh, words will help them in their own lives. This was part two of my conversation with Dr. Jim Doty, where we spoke about the secrets of the heart. And what a beautiful finale to come to. And I want to take a couple of minutes just to give us some insights and inspirations to carry forward from this, from this conversation with Dr. Doty. He highlighted how the heart has not always been very actively researched by the scientific community as a factor in the way we think, decide, and do things in the world. And yet, there are more signals going from the heart to the brain than the opposite. And he spoke in these beautiful words about how when you go inward and the heart is open, we will connect with the heart and the heart will compel us to go outward and connect then with others. Uh, he spoke about the fact that we have the capacity to self-modulate our emotional life you know, our thoughts and our behavior by creating a little bit of that healthy distance between the stimulus and the response, which can have huge positive consequences for us when we, when we take for ourselves that power in us to choose what is it that we want to arrive with in a given moment in terms of our attitude and our behavior. And when we do that, it actually improves our longevity and our social connections. He spoke about how the more we do that, the more we cultivate the heart, the more we make this inner commitment to go on a journey where we choose our own happiness from within. We, we are empowered to actually act and think in ways that we think are appropriate and right, not just being triggered habitually and instinctually by what's happening on the outside. When we do that, when we show up with more of a sense of intrigue and interest in people, respect for people, a caring and kindness in our attitude, well, then People naturally so tend to reciprocate. You know, people then, he said, were helpful to me. They wanted to see me succeed because I was not giving this impression of being angry and hostile. I was giving the impression of being open and having a desire to be of service and of caring to them. And this notion, therefore, that we get the best out of people when we are giving our best. And then there is, of course, this beautiful alphabet of the heart, the letters of the alphabet from C to L, Compassion, dignity, equanimity, forgiveness, gratitude, humility, integrity, justice, kindness, and finally love. This idea that you can, you can take on this practice where at the beginning of the day in your meditation or at some point when you're feeling the stresses of the day come to you, you know, just pausing, just repeating in a very mindful way these words you know, from the C to the L and just infusing yourself with that aspiration and intention. Um, he talked about how when you start to carry within yourself this energy. That's what you know, the great minds and souls out in the world can sense about you and from you. It's not necessarily what you're saying or what you're doing. It's just who you are. And he talked about how in his connection and privilege opportunities with these very evolved spiritual leaders, he feels like that is what they're really sensing almost instantly 
in every one of us, our energy from within. And then finally, he ends with these beautiful and thoughtful words about how it's this inner journey that we make, which then allows us to recognize that, in fact, being of service is the expression of our greatest humanity. And that every one of us can do something small every day to improve the life of another person. Even just the simple act of saying hello.